Section 4 of the Shakespeare Apocrypha. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dave Campbell of Burnaby, British Columbia. The Shakespeare Apocrypha by C. F. Tucker Brooke. Section 4. 3. Edward III, in some ways the most extraordinary of all the doubtful plays, is first heard of in the Stationer's Register for December 1, 1595. Three other entries are recorded between this date and February 23, 1625. The earliest edition, Q1, has the following title page. Quote, the reign of King Edward III, as it hath been sundry times played about the city of London. London, printed for Cuthbert Burby, 1596. Unquote. The play must have been temporarily popular, for in 1599 there appeared a second quattro, Q2, printed likewise for Cuthbert Burby. From this time, however, Edward III seems to have been very largely neglected during more than a century and a half, till it was permanently rescued from oblivion by the scholarly editing of Capel in 1760. Scene two of the first act and the second act of Edward III are based in part on Holland's Head's Chronicle of Scotland and in part on a novel by Bandello, as translated in Painter's Palace of Pleasure. The only source of the rest of the drama, according to Warnicke and Proschelt, is Hollinshead's Chronicle of England. But Knight may be correct in recognizing through the last three acts the influence of Frossart as well. The Villiers-Salisbury episode, not in Hollinshead, has been traced by Dr. R. M. Smith to Berner's Frossart, chapter 135. The two editions of the play were anonymous. However, in an exact and perfect catalogue of all plays that are printed, prefixed to T. Joff's Careless Shepherdess, 1654, the three plays of Edward II, Edward III, and Edward IV are assigned to Shakespeare. Such an attribution is uncritical and untrustworthy on the face of it, and appears to have been ignored in the case of Edward III, as of course it was in the case of the other two histories, till Capel's introduction to our play in his volume of Prolusions or Select Pieces of Ancient Poetry put the argument for its authenticity boldly and persuasively before the popular mind. The first two acts of Edward III concern themselves mainly with a love intrigue. The beginning of the third act brings with it a complete change of plot and a considerable diminution in dramatic force. Since Capel, only Tieck, Collier, Tietgen, and Hopkinson, untrustworthy critics all, have assigned the entire play to Shakespeare. But the number of those who regard the main portion of the first episode as Shakespearean includes at least three high authorities, Tennyson, Ward, and Fleay, while Hollywell Phillips, Terrell, and Freiherr von Vinke recognize the authenticity of these scenes as at least possible. In the criticism of Edward III, however, as in that of Arden of Feversham, the trend of modern opinion inclines strongly to the negative side. The long list of those who deny the presence in the play of more than conceivably a few brief insertions by Shakespeare includes Mr. Swinburne, Dr. Furnival, Saintsbury, Knight, Simmons, G.C. Moore-Smith, Ulrici, Delius, Warnicke and Proschelt, H. von Friesen, and Leibau. It will doubtless be generally agreed by readers of the play that the last acts dealing with the French wars, though full of fine dramatic poetry, are as a whole not by Shakespeare. 
And there seems good reason to believe that the earlier Countess scenes, so much more Shakespearean at first sight, are in reality by the same author as the rest of the drama. Whether the scenes in which the Countess appears, and possibly other passages, were later revised by a second hand, Shakespeare's or another's, is a question that must be left open. The supporters of the authenticity of the love episode explain it usually as a relatively late addition, written by Shakespeare, to eke out the insufficiently long military scenes. In all events, it is certain that if there is any difference in date of composition, the military scenes represent the original dramatic conception, to which the love episode is subsequent. But there are two passages in Act Three which belong apparently to the very first draft, and which refer directly to the love episode. In the third scene, King John says, For what's this Edward but a belly god, a tender and lascivious wantonness, that the other day was almost dead for love? And in scene five, King Edward likewise reminds the audience of the events of the first two acts. Now, John of France, I hope thou knowest King Edward for no wantonness, no lovesick cockney. The author of Act Three must therefore have had the contents of Acts One and Two distinctly before his mind. A more definite indication of singleness of authorship is the fact that wherever in the last three acts the necessity of portraying actual events disappears, there we find, as in Act Four, Scene Three, a return to the tone and style of the earlier unhistoric scenes. Indeed, it is not too much to assert that the true lover and student of this play will be likely to turn with most pleasure not to the brilliant intrigue scenes of the first acts, which have, I think, a rather cloying sweetness, but to the freshness and perfect sincerity of some of the later passages, uneven and sometimes uncouth though they are. There is a verve and exhilaration about the scene, in which the black prince receives his arms, and that in which he returns to his father triumphant from the shadow of death, or in the brief eighth scene of Act Four, where Audley passes, wounded and dying, across the stage, which are nowhere to be found in the Countess episode. The latter is certainly a much finer entity than any other division of the play, but there is probably not a passage in it which does more credit to the poetic ability of the author than this single line of Audley's. Quote, Good friends, convey me to the princely Edward, that in the crimson browery of my blood I may become him with saluting him. Or the four spoken by the second citizen of Calais. Quote, the sun, dread lord, that in the western fall beholds us, now low brought through misery, did in the orient purple of the morn salute our coming forth when we were known. Unquote. Mr. Simmons has remarked that, in case Edward III was written as a whole by some imitator of Shakespeare's Marlowe-esque manner, the unknown author would naturally have succeeded better in his treatment of the love story which Bandello had shaped ready to his hand than when he came in the later acts to deal with the refractory material of actual history. The nature of the play, from beginning to end, lends special weight to this criticism. Throughout, we recognize the writer's love of noble situations and his sympathy with high-minded characters, but the continual inferiority of his hand to his heart is equally obvious. The inability to grasp strongly the realities of life produces in the historical scenes a woodenness and restraint which mark these portions of the play as distinctly un-Shakespearean, despite several bursts of magnificent poetry. In the greater part of the first two acts, however, and occasionally elsewhere, the demands of realistic sanity are less obvious. 
and the author has been able to rise to a very great height by his fine poetic sense and delicacy of feeling. Yet the central fault is present here as elsewhere. Notwithstanding their figurative richness of style, their melody and forcefulness of expression, and their real likeness in many outward features to Shakespeare, the scenes between the Countess and the King will hardly bear frequent rereading. Tried by the test of what they say, not how they say it. These passages sound hollow and insincere. The sophistry of nearly all the arguments becomes more objectionable, as one knows the play better, as one comes to feel, once the bewildering effect of the declamation has abated, how much the characters guide their actions by the dictates of complex academic reasoning, and how little by the inner voice of nature. Yet after declaring Shakespeare utterly incapable at the mature period presumed by the artistic finish of Edward III of the quibbling mawkishness of Warwick and the Countess, the conscientious critic will pause long before he undertakes to name the actual author, one of the truest poets and most ardent patriots certainly of his generation. I would like to see this fine, though very imperfect play, recognized as the crown and conclusion of the works of George Peel, a poet who has perhaps received scant justice in recent times, but who in the fire and melody of his poetry rises high above all but the two greatest of his contemporaries. David and Besebi is only just inferior in its best parts to Edward III, and the two works bear a very marked resemblance in all essential particulars. In both there is the basal lack of unity arising from the juxtaposition of a love episode conceived in a vein of rare lyrical beauty, and a military political plot for which the author's hand shows itself less well adapted. Both are characterized by nearly total abstinence from the mythological jargon of Green, by the peculiar liquid beauty of Peel's best poetry, and by a verse movement which is almost identical. As in David and Besebi and the Battle of Alcazar, so in Edward III there is not a vestige of comedy, a fact which would surprise us in the work of almost any writer of the time except two. For it is a curious truth that Peel, with his immense reputation as a gesture and social buffoon, has left us less comedy, and that little of a feebler sort, than any of his contemporaries save Christopher Marlowe. For the type of ardent but rather undiscriminating patriotism which pervades Edward III, any number of parallels will be found in the arrangement of Paris, Edward I, and the Battle of Alcazar. It must be conceded that Edward III is a finer production than any with which Peel is at present accredited. Yet I believe that the majority of persons who will compare the first act of David and Besebi with the first two acts of Edward III will recognize not only that the general characteristics, merits, and defects are the same, but furthermore that there is nothing in the latter play which was not potentially within the grasp of the poet who could write the former. A few years more of practice, a free hand, and the change from the dry, threshed husks of biblical narrative to the full and stimulating garners of native history might have performed a far greater transfiguration. 4. Musidorus first appears in an edition of 1598 with the title page, quote, A most pleasant comedy of Musidorus, the king's son of Valencia, and Amadine, the king's daughter of Aragon, with the merry conceits of Mouse, newly set forth as it hath been sundry times played in the honourable city of London, very delectable and full of mirth, London, printed for William Jones, dwelling at Holborn Conduit at the sign of the gun, 1598. 
There is no mention of the play in the extant stationer's registers till September 17, 1618. Of all pre-Restoration plays, Musidorus passed through the greatest number of early editions. Seventeen have been enumerated by Mr. W. W. Gregg, the dates in order of publication being as follows. 1669, Q17. Collier has mentioned yet another quattro dated 1609 upon which he professed to base his text of the play, but it is highly probable that this edition, known to nobody but Collier, is entirely imaginary. Nine of the existing quattros are to be found in the British Museum. To these, the Bodleian, Trinity College, Cambridge, and the Dice Collection add two others each. Q7 and Q9, neither of which is important, are the only ones not easily accessible, the former being in Mr. Huth's private library, the latter in the Municipal Library of Danzig. Collation of all the British Museum quattros and careful consideration of the rest show that it is possible to divide the early texts of Musidorus into the following three groups. Group A including only Q1 and Q2, is characterized by the absence of certain scenes and passages found in all the others. Group B embraces Q3 to 6. All the editions of this group, as well as Q1 and Q2, were published by William Jones. Group C includes Q7 to 17. The first seven of these editions, Q7 to 13, were published by John Wright. Q14 to 16, and probably Q17 by Francis Coles. In this group, the text has been superficially edited, the spelling modernized to some extent, and grammatical irregularities normalized. The divergences within the various groups appear quite unintentional and are confined as a rule to mere misprints and variant spellings. The title page of Q3 runs, quote, A most pleasant comedy of Musidorus, amplified with new additions, as it was acted before the King's Majesty at Whitehall on Shrove Sunday night, by His Highness' servants usually playing at the Globe, very delectable and full of conceited mirth." Unquote. The title pages of the subsequent quattros are as nearly as possible the same. Most of the critical interest attaching to Musidorus concerns the new additions found in the texts of groups B and C, and the definite statement in these editions that the play was acted by the King's Men, usually playing at the Globe. The editions are certainly not by the original author, and are superior to the rest of the comedy. They include the prologue, scenes one and two of the first act, scene one of the fourth act, a revision and amplification of Act 5, scene 2 from line 91, and of the epilogue from line 14. The source of the comedy has not been discovered. Schlegel, who had not read the play, conjectured wrongly that it was founded on the story of Valentine and Orson, the subject of a Spanish drama by Lope de Vega. 
Among the Roxborough ballads, there is a poem which, though hardly older in its present form than the 17th century, differs from our play in several particulars and may be based in part on an earlier version of the story. The heading of the ballad reads, quote, The wandering prince and princess of Musidorus and Amadine, both of royal progeny, who being unfortunately separated by means of their parents disagreeing, as fortunately met in a desert, while both resolved never to cease from searching till they had found out each other. In shady deserts there was none but beasts to hear these lovers moan. There these faithful lovers met. Their marriage day was quickly set. Tune the young Phaon. Unquote. Besides the conclusive testimony of the large number of early editions and the circulation of a ballad on the subject, we have several other evidences of the special popularity of Musidorus with vulgar audiences in the 17th century. The citizen's wife, in the night of the burning pestle, says of an apprentice, quote, Nay, gentlemen, he hath played before, my husband says, Musidorus, before the wardens of our company. Unquote. To the same effect is the following interesting record of the comedy's vogue in the provinces during the Commonwealth. Quote, the comedy of Musidorus was revived by some strollers in 1652 and privately exhibited in the villages of Moore, Standlake, Southley, and Cumnor in Oxfordshire, till in the following February they ventured to represent it publicly at Whitney. The use of the town hall being denied them, they were obliged to perform it at the White Hart Inn, where a numerous audience assembled on the evening of the 3rd." On this occasion several persons were killed by the giving way of the floor, and the town lecturer Rowe profited by the catastrophe to deliver a series of sermons against theatrical performances. The only external evidence which in any degree sanctions the attribution of Musidorus to Shakespeare consists in the statement on the title page of 1610 and after, that the play belonged to the repertoire of the Globe Company, and the fact of its inclusion with Fair M and the Merry Devil of Edmonton in the famous Shakespeare volume prepared for Charles II's library. Tieck alone has ascribed the whole of Musidorus to Shakespeare, and modern criticism will no longer tolerate so absurd an attribution. There can be little doubt that the comedy in its original form was the work of some member of the School of University Wits. Malone attempted, on the most dubious of external testimony, to establish Green's authorship, and Mr. Hopkinson holds the same view, which, however, has recently been discredited by Mr. Churton Collins. Mr. Fleay prefers to give to Lodge such credit as the composition of these crude early scenes carries with it, while H. von Friesen supposes Peel to have written them. The spirit of the school is everywhere visible, especially so perhaps in such a pastoral bit as Act 4, Scene 3. But there is little to identify the individual poet. If he be one of the three or four famous members of the group, then much of the play must represent hasty or slovenly work. But it is more likely that these old scenes were written by an obscure and only moderately gifted disciple. The additional scenes, written apparently between the publication of the second edition in 1606 and the third in 1610, are of greater poetic merit than the rest of the comedy, and somewhat more in Shakespeare's manner. It is agreed that they fall far short of what one would expect from Shakespeare at this period. Yet Collier, Hopkinson, and Simpson accept them, with reservations, as hurried and careless patchwork, done by the master in his capacity of theatre manager. 
Against this, and in support of the negative position occupied by Fliet, Ward, Tyrell, Knight, Warnicke, and Proschelt, and Sophay, it may be mentioned, first, that though the single authorship of the editions is pretty evident, only one of the new scenes, Act 4, Scene 1, shows anything which can possibly be regarded as the imperfect work of genius, while the others display merely workmanlike mediocrity. Second, that all the new scenes indicate the very reverse of haste and carelessness. Their great fault is that they impress the reader as labored. Third, that the style, even in the finest scene of all, is sometimes so strained and artificial as not conceivably to be Shakespeare's in 1606 to 1610. Take, for instance, this couplet in Act 4, Scene 1, quote, No, no, till Musidorus I shall see again, all joy is comfortless, all pleasure pain, unquote. Mr. Fliet suggests Wilkins as the author of the editions, but the matter is not likely soon to be settled. So much seems certain, that the editions to Musidorus were written by a person of true, but neither great nor mature poetic gifts, who stood somewhat under the influence of Shakespeare. 5. Two quattro editions of the first part of Sir John Oldcastle bear the date 1600. One, which we may call Q1, bears the title The First Part of the True and Honourable History of the Life of Sir John Oldcastle, the Good Lord Cobham, as it hath been lately acted by the Right Honourable the Earl of Nottingham, Lord High Admiral of England, his servants. London, printed for V.S. by Thomas Pauvier, and are to be sold at his shop at the sign of the Cat and Parrots near the Exchange, 1600. The other quattro, Q2, inserts the words written by William Shakespeare and replaces the full particulars as to the publisher's name and address by the non-committal sentence, London, printed for T.P., 1600. This dishonest and defective text has been followed by the editions of the third and fourth Shakespeare folios, F1, F2, and all others before 1908. There can be no doubt, though, that the anonymous quattro, Q1, is infinitely superior. It contains many fine passages which Q2 has either omitted entirely or hopelessly corrupted. The play was registered by Pavier, August 11, 1600. Sir John Oldcastle has many pleasant and a few really good scenes, but there is perhaps no member of the pseudo-Shakespearean group more totally destitute of a single passage which might imaginably have been written by Shakespeare. Only Tieck and Schlegel have championed its genuineness. And the question of authorship has now been settled with a most agreeable definiteness by the unearthing of the following entries in Henslow's diary. Quote, this 16 of October, 1599, received by me, Thomas Downton, of Philip Henslow, to pay Mr. Monday, Mr. Drayton, and Mr. Wilson and Hathaway for the first part of the life of Sir John Oldcastle and an earnest of the second part for use of the company, ten pound, I say received. Unquote. Quote, received of Mr. Hinchlow and Mr. Monday and the rest of the poets at the playing of Sir John Oldcastle the first time as a gift, unquote. From other entries, it appears that the second part of Sir John Oldcastle, now lost, was written by Drayton alone. The first part of Oldcastle was beyond question composed for the Lord Admiral's company as a reply to the successful Falstaff plays, which the Lord Chamberlain's servants had been acting. 
The character of Falstaff, originally called Old Castle, is certainly aimed at in the slur of the prologue, quote, It is no pampered glutton we present, nor aged counselor to youthful sin, unquote. The gambling scene between the disguised king and Sir John of Rotham suggests Henry V, Act 4, Scene 1, while the reference to the thieving exploits of the king's youth is a clear allusion to the first part of Henry IV, and the two mentions of Falstaff by name are reminiscent of the same play. Quote, King, where the devil are my old thieves that were wont to keep this walk? Falstaff, the villain, is so fat he cannot get on his horse but methinks Poins and Pito should be stirring hereabouts, unquote. And, quote, Sir John, because he, i.e. the king, once robbed me before I fell to the trade myself, when that foul villainous guts that led him to all that roguery was in his company there, that Falstaff, unquote. End of section four. Recording by Dave Campbell of Burnaby, British Columbia.